Every year, one thing is always predictable. Postage costs go up. Stamps.com gives you crazy discounts for up to 89% off USPS and UPS services, so your business will barely notice the change. Stamps.com has been indispensable for over 1 million businesses just like yours. It's like your own personal post office. No lines, no traffic, no waiting. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com code PROGRAM. Hey everyone, and welcome back to this fourth installment of my Reply Brief series where I'm breaking down the prosecutor's podcast's analysis of the case against Ednan Syed. We're at a critical point in their coverage right now. In episode three, which I covered last week, and episode four that I'm breaking down today, Brett and Alice walk us through the timeline of the events that occurred on January 13, 1999, the day Heyman Lee went missing. Before I get into their episode today, first I want to address a couple things, and first is a follow-up from last week. As I've been re-examining this case, so far I've been shocked at how much new information that I've discovered along the way. The most significant being the fact that the time that we've all come to accept that Hay was due to pick up her cousin very well may be wrong. Last week I shared that at trial the prosecution said that Hay was due to pick up her cousin at 3 p.m., not 3.15. Then, after Serial aired and stated that time as 3.15, to my knowledge the first time anyone has said 3.15, Hay's brother Young got on Reddit and said that wasn't right, that Hay was supposed to pick up her cousin at 3 o'clock. And since my last episode, I dug a little deeper and I looked up the initial handwritten missing persons report created by Officer Adcock. This is what it says. Picks up child at 1500, 1515 hours. Now, just in case you don't know military time, that's 3 p.m. and 3.15 p.m. Now, this is a little confusing because it says two times, and it's not explained why. Just, quote, picks up child at 3 o'clock, 3.15. So it's certainly understandable where the mistake comes from, if it is a mistake. He does write 3.15, but he also wrote 3 o'clock. If I had to venture a guess, and it would definitely be just a guess, I'd say it probably means she picks her cousin up at 3 o'clock and drops her off at home at 3.15. He didn't draw 3 o'clock out of thin air. He's interviewing Young, who's providing him with this information. Another possibility is something that I'd never noticed before. Hay didn't just pick up her cousin. She picked up two cousins after school every day. Quote, I spoke to Mr. Lee, the victim's brother, who advised that his sister did not pick up her two cousins after school, end quote. So 3 o'clock and 3.15 could be the two times when she picked up the two different cousins. They may have attended different schools, I don't know. The school we're all familiar with, Campfield, is a preschool. So one interpretation could be that she picks up cousin number one at Campfield at 3 o'clock, 
then goes to pick up cousin number two at another school at 315. And unfortunately, Young's trial testimony doesn't provide any more clarity. He's asked on the stand what time Hay was supposed to pick up her cousin, and Young replies, quote, around 3 o'clock, or 3.15, end quote. So, another possibility is that that's just what he said to Adcock, 3 o'clock or 3.15, although it seems unlikely that he wouldn't know the time just two hours after the fact. And he's also never asked about the second cousin at trial, so we don't get an explanation about that either. So this is what we're left with. The initial report says both 3 o'clock and 3.15, with no explanation as to why. At trial, Yurik states as fact that the pickup was at 3 o'clock. I'd like to think that he made sure to research this, perhaps by getting the schedule from the school before stating that as fact, but his prior history doesn't suggest that he actually made sure his facts were accurate, so who knows. But we do know that Young, in no uncertain terms, has since said that Hay was due at the school at 3 p.m. But he said that 16 years later, so you can take it or leave it. But the one thing we know for absolute certainty is that pickup was not at 3.20, as Alice said in Episode 3. There is zero evidence to support that at all. And in a recent interview with True Crime Garage, Brett now moves the pickup time back to 3.30, or around 3.30, which is also nonsense. And why does all of this matter? Because minutes matter in this case. I swear I feel like I've been living in the twilight zone these last few weeks. Brett and Alice and the people that they have convinced that Adnan is guilty continually point to the cell phone records to prove their case. But as soon as you point out conflicts in the timing of the cell phone records, they say that you're nitpicking. You're not looking at the big picture. There's a basic story that emerges. Well, what in the actual fuck does that mean? Does anyone else see how contradictory that is? We know Adnan is guilty because of the preciseness of the cell records and how they corroborate Jay's story. But if we look at the calls and how they actually disprove Jay's story, we're what? Looking too closely? You can't have it both ways. Either times and places matter or they don't. I'm not nitpicking. I'm not cherry picking. I'm giving you all the available evidence and I'm about to show you how it proves that Adnan could not have done this. All right, sorry for the rant. Getting back to the pickup time. Here's why it matters. I said last week that in my opinion, Inez Butler's police interview is probably the most credible and important witness statement that we have in regards to what Hay was doing after school. I believe that the evidence proves Inez was the last person interviewed to have seen Hay alive that day. And the likelihood that the pickup time was actually 3 o'clock cements that even more for me. This is what Inez told police back in 99. She said that after the bus loop cleared, Hay pulled up in front of the school. Hay kept the car running and left the keys in the car. Now, Inez could not have known either of those things unless she could see the car. It was right there in front of her. Inez has a specific memory of this interaction because it wasn't just a normal day. She had a very specific conversation with Hay about her skirt being too short. Quote, Hay keeps car running, keys in car, runs behind counter, very fine apple juice, hot fries. We fuss told her to go home and change clothes. She said she had to pick up cousin before she could go to work, end quote. Then as they try to determine what time this happened in the interview, Inez goes on to say that she left herself at 2.45 or 2.50, and she knows that because her child's bell rings at 2.45. The time Hay would have to leave in order to get to Campfield by 3 p.m. would be no later than 2.49 p.m. It's an 11-minute drive. 
and Inez knows that she herself had to leave no later than 2.50. So the interaction with Hay had to happen before that. And Hay was running later than usual. So, quote, she didn't want to wait with the others, so she just ran behind the counter, end quote. So there's a line of students buying snacks, but Hay just grabbed her stuff, and we learn from subsequent interviews that she didn't pay for her snacks. Inez knew that she would just pay later, but she never saw Hay again, which is another reason that this instance is cemented in her memory. Also quoting from the report, quote, I know everyone did not see Adnan in the gym area that day, end quote. And just to be clear, her snack stand was in the gym area, just outside. Everything about this interview indicates it's not only accurate, but that Inez was in fact the last person at the school to see Hay alive. She said Hay was wearing a short skirt. She was, in fact, wearing a short skirt. She said she was in a hurry because she had to pick up her cousin. She did have to pick up her cousin. She said that after she picked up her cousin, she had to go to work. She did have to go to work that day. And at that point, Hay had already gotten into her car in the back of the school and had already driven around to the front of the school and then drove away without Adnan. But all the prosecutors told you about Inez was that a year later at trial, she changed going to work to a wrestling match that didn't exist, and they used that to debunk her statement. (sighs) Okay, I'm really long, and I haven't even begun to address the prosecutor's episode yet, but one more thing I want to say before beginning is kind of a big-picture concept. So far, no one, not even Brett and Alice, have been able to show how Adnan committed this murder with Jay's statements, Jen's statements, the cell phone records, or any combination of the three. They use some sleight of hand and just tell you to trust them. There's a basic story there. But really there isn't, and I'm going to prove that to you today. Their final conclusion feels very much like the wizard telling Dorothy to pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. My job is to pull back the curtain. There are two basic schools of thought in this case. Between 2.15 p.m. and 5 p.m., either Adnan is at the school meandering about waiting for track practice and then goes to track practice, or Adnan is murdering Hay and then driving around with Jay, dropping her car off, and then going back to the school to go to track practice. For scenario one, 100% of the evidence available, every single solitary witness and even a letter signed and dated from his counselor confirms this theory without any conflict. And I'm not talking about what Adnan says. I'm talking about what everyone else says. All of the witnesses that were interviewed. All of them. Asia sees him in the library. Then Becky sees him in the hallway where Hay says she can't give him a ride, and she sees them walk away in different directions. Then Debbie sees Adnan in the guidance counselor's office with his track gear talking about going to track practice. About that same time, Hay pulls up in front of the gym on the other side of the school. She's in a hurry, but Inez Butler is giving her a hard time about her skirt. Adnan is nowhere around. Hay says she has to pick up her cousin and then go to work, and she drives off alone. Then Adnan changes into his track clothes and heads down to the track where Coach Sai says he was there on time. That's what a basic story looks like. Notice that no one, not one single person, saw Hay and Adnan together. There is literally nothing to refute any of this. A normal day. The only evidence to suggest that all of these witnesses are wrong 
is Jay's story. Were it not for Jay's story, no one in their right mind would do anything other than clear Adnan as a suspect. He's very clearly and easily alibied. And whoever killed Hay did not leave the school with her that day. She left alone. And I've been talking about this online with some people this week, and it's such a bizarre scenario. So people will say, I believe Adnan's guilty because I believe some version of Jay's story. And then you point out all these witness statements and say, they all disprove Jay's story. And they'll come up with a million reasons why maybe all these people are wrong with no evidence to back it up. And if you ask them for evidence as to why we shouldn't believe Inez, why do you think she got it wrong? What evidence is there that any of these witnesses are wrong? And the answer is because they believe Jay's story. And no one seems to see the circular logic there. I believe Jay. All this evidence refutes Jay. Well, then all those people must be wrong. What's the evidence that those people are wrong? Well, it's because I believe Jay. And speaking of Jay, his stories, as opposed to all the other witnesses, no one can make them work. No one. I have never seen it done without the curtain hiding the wizard. There has to be, well, Jay lies, so that's why this part doesn't line up. Or Jay was protecting his grandma. That's why he said they were driving around for an hour and a half when the phone records only show five minutes. Brett and Alice repeatedly state that Jay, as a witness, is perfectly normal, and I call bullshit on that. And in fact, if you listen to them, they call bullshit on it themselves. They say that most witnesses that they prep have inconsistent statements and lie, but then they also say that eventually they're able to get to the truth. Now that, I agree, isn't entirely abnormal. But the thing about Jay is, we never get there. Every single version of his story is provably false. All of them. No matter how hard you try to fit them to the cell phone records, he never once gets it right. And this is what I think is normal, or better yet, this is why this case is not normal. It shouldn't be this hard. It isn't this hard if you're dealing with an actual witness to a crime. Brett and Alice use smoke and mirrors to make you think that there are good reasons for Jay's lies. They're always mentioning protecting his grandmother or lessening his involvement. But those are just words with no basis in reality. Whether the trunk pop happened at a pool hall or on Edmondson Avenue or at Best Buy, none of those places are grandma's house. So what's the utility of changing the strip on Edmondson Avenue to Best Buy to a pool hall or at his house? Those are some of the versions he told. What's the utility in changing one from the other to protect his grandma? None. And according to their analysis of the cell records, it couldn't have happened at grandma's house. So we hear about how people get times wrong all the time, and that's true. But one thing people don't forget is the place where someone showed them a fucking body in a trunk. Give me a break. The fact is that the state was forced to just put Jay up as a witness and just hope that no one noticed that literally everything he said happened was impossible. And then they cleaned it up in their closing arguments. Jay testified that Adnan called him to come get him after 3.30. That's the actual evidence, so in closing, they just say it happened at 2.36. And Brett and Alice are in the same boat, and they did the same thing, without the hindrance of cross-examination, which is where I come in. They had it a little easier because there was no defense to counter them. Inez said Hay was going to a wrestling match so we can eliminate her statement. Jay said he was specifically told Adnan would call at 3.30, 
but he knows the call was late and didn't happen till at least 3.40. So of course, when was the come get me call? Must have been 3.15. My point is that it shouldn't be this complicated. It's never this complicated when you have a truthful witness. A witness making it through all these versions of the story, all the way up to a prepped version at trial, who still can't make a narrative that is actually possible, is not normal. So here's some more Occam's razor. If you have 100% of witnesses at school telling you that Hay did not leave with Adnan, and one person tells you that he did, but that person's story is over and over again refuted by the actual evidence, probably the 100% of witnesses at the school are right. With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. All right. First thing on the agenda today, and to be truthful, probably the only thing, is bum bum bum, the Nisha call. Brett and Alice left off last week at 3.30 p.m., and this episode begins with a long discussion about the next call in the call log. At 3.32 p.m., Adnan's phone calls Nisha. This is a 2-minute and 22-second call that pinged the tower on the west side of town in a sector that faces west, and that will come up later. The sector that this outgoing call pinged is the one that covers the Best Buy, the Security Square Mall, Adnan's house, the mosque, everything on the west side of the map. Now, the Nisha call has been one of the most hotly disputed elements of this case since we all heard about it on Serial. And the reason that this call is so important for the guilty crowd is because it appears to show that Adnan was not at track practice stretching and talking to Coach Sai at 3.30, like Coach Sai says he was. Instead, he was with his phone, which Jay had, calling Nisha. The Nisha calls also why both the prosecution and Brett and Alice shy away from Jay's actual story, the thing he actually says consistently over and over again, that Adnan didn't call him to come get him until after 3.30. See, the thing is that the only call on the call log that could be the come and get me call, as Jay describes it, had to have occurred at 3.45. But the 3.45 p.m. call can't be the come get me call because then Adnan wouldn't have called Nisha at 3.32, nor could he have been at the beginning of track practice. Hence, everyone who is desperately trying to make Jay's story believable will always disregard his own words and Jen's words and insist that the 3.15 call is the come-get-me call. Because in Jay's made-up story, it's the only call that could possibly work, even though it doesn't, which I'll explain in a minute. Adnan and Jay have to be together with Adnan's phone for this call in order for Adnan to be guilty. And that's not just me saying that. Brett agrees. Here's what he had to say about it on the podcast. This call is a huge problem for Adnan. It puts Adnan and Jay together at exactly when they would need to be together for Adnan to have killed Hay. 
So Brett and I agree on that. Adnan has to be with Jay making this phone call if there's any possibility of him being guilty. This call serves as the single piece of evidence that refutes all the other evidence that suggests Adnan never left the school. So let's take a look at the Nisha call. Brett and Alice spend quite a bit of time on it and conclude that it's a real stretch to think that this might have been a butt dial. And they make a really compelling argument that is designed to leave you convinced that this call absolutely has to have been Jay and Adnan together, and the call is made because Adnan is creating an alibi for himself. And by the way, I should point out, because I don't think I've ever heard anybody mention this, all the things they say that Adnan is doing to create an alibi, one thing you might notice is that he's never offered any of them for an alibi. Almost like he doesn't know he needs an alibi, or certainly doesn't know when he needs an alibi. If the call to Nisha was, as they say, so that he could say, man, I couldn't have been murdering, hey, I was hanging out with my buddy Jay. That's what Brett and Alice say on the podcast. Well, then why didn't he say that? He never said that. He never mentioned the call to Nisha. Or if the conversation with Coach Sia track practice was so he could say, I couldn't have been killing, hey, I was sitting at track practice talking to Coach. Well, if that's the case, Why didn't he ever say, I couldn't have done this because I was at track with Coach? He's never offered these things as an alibi. This is all part of that process of them trying to convince you that this makes sense. But the reality of it is, Adnan has never, ever even suggested that these were his alibi. Because remember, up to trial, he didn't know when he needed an alibi for. So getting back to their episode, Brett and Alice make a really good, compelling argument that this call was Adnan and Jay together, and that it was made to create an alibi. And they do that in a few ways. As usual, they just shake off the inconsistencies that I'll break down here in a minute. Jay and Jen simply have their times wrong. And then they say things like this. Nisha said this call happened a day or two after Adnan got his cell phone. She says that she remembers talking to Jay and that he doesn't seem all that friendly. Well, that sounds pretty compelling. Nisha said that the time she talked to Jay and Adnan together was a day or two after Adnan got his new cell phone. Well, since we know that he indeed got his phone the day before the murder, sure sounds like Nisha got the day right, doesn't it? But let's look at what Nisha actually said. In her police interview on April 1st, so two and a half months after the fact, the notes say, quote, I think it was around the time when he first got his cell phone, end quote. Then a few lines later, the interviewer indents the line and puts two asterisks and wrote, quote, day or two after he got cell phone, end quote. So to be fair, that's where Brett got that information from. It does indeed say that in the report. I'm not saying that it doesn't. Not trial, Nisha simply said, quote, I can't remember the exact date, end quote. And Yurik, of course, doesn't push that issue any more than that. And of course, Gutierrez doesn't think to hone in on the information we're about to discuss. So we have, quote, I think it was around the time he got his cell phone. That note that says a day or two after he got his cell phone, and I can't remember the exact date. Luckily, I agree with Brett and Alice that it's not wise to expect people to remember dates and times. What we should be looking for are anchors, like the discussion about the skirt, or the chat about Ramadan, or the fact that Hay didn't pay for her snacks, stuff like that. What information does the person share that we can use to determine the time outside of just their memory? People remember experiences, typically not times and dates. And in this case, 
It's really simple to figure out the one and only time Nisha ever spoke with Jay on the phone. Now, Brett and Alice characterize what I'm about to talk about as just a minor conflict. In fact, they cite two minor conflicts that you need to ignore in order to make this time work. Three, actually. Jay says that Adnan didn't call him to pick him up before 3.30, but he must have been wrong. Jen says Jay didn't leave her house before 3.30, so she must also be wrong. And Nisha remembers that the one and only time she ever talked to Jay was when he was working at the adult video store. A job that he didn't start until two weeks after this call, so she must be wrong too. Think about how insane of a position that is. You have a call and a call log. The theory is that this must be Adnan calling Nisha and putting Jay on the phone with him to create an alibi. To support your theory, you have three pieces of evidence, three witness statements. All three of them give statements that completely disprove the theory, so then what's your conclusion? Now the theory's confirmed. What? And we know this because it's insane to think on a Nokia phone in 1999 that Jay could have butt-dialed someone. There's a reason why we all know what that phrase means, because before touchscreens, it happened all the fucking time. Anyway, I'll circle back to that. Let me dig into Nisha's statement here and show you how silly this is. In the police statement, the report says, quote, He handed phone to Jay to talk to me. Thought Jay was white. Jay didn't seem friendly. Defendant just got to Jay's store. I think it was in the afternoon or maybe later on, 4 or 5 o'clock. Never talked to Jay again. Only one time. End quote. So we just have the notes here. So let's jump into her trial testimony so we can maybe get the full story. Yurik, did there ever come a time when the defendant called you and put a person identified as Jay on the phone? Nisha, yes. Yurik, please tell the ladies and gentlemen of the jury what that call consisted of. Nisha, basically Jay had asked him to come to an adult video store that he worked at. He just asked me how I was doing, and then he put his phone, put his friend Jay on the line, and he basically asked the same question. I can't remember the exact date. Yurik, do you recall about what time of day that call occurred? Nisha, yeah, I think it was in the evening time. End quote. So, after hearing that, we don't have an exact date, but what we do have is a very clear recollection of the event. Nisha couldn't be clearer. She has only ever spoken to Jay one time, ever. And while she says she doesn't recall the exact date, she does very clearly recall the circumstance. Adnan was visiting Jay at the adult video store. And since we know Jay didn't start working at the adult video store until two and a half weeks after the murder, there is no question, no question at all. The one single time that Nisha ever talked to Jay on the phone was sometime after January 31st. Period. Now, Brett and Alice mentioned this, but again, just chalk it up to a faulty memory. Now, not knowing the exact date, that's a memory issue. Completely fabricating an entire scenario and conversation, one that actually does line up with what Jay was doing in late January, that's not a memory issue. To me, it is simply outrageous that they try to explain this away. In what reality would Nisha make up this circumstance of Adnan visiting Jay in the adult video store? I've even heard other people say that maybe Adnan just said that's where they were because he was trying to create an alibi, which is even more ridiculous because neither of them had any idea that Jay would then 
two and a half weeks later, actually be working in an adult video store. The mental gymnastics required to make this call fit with the 332 call on January 13th is actually astounding. But they make a hell of an effort. Listen to what Brett says about the time. We aren't trying to figure out whether or not a call happened on this day and whether or not it happened at this time. It did happen, and it happened at that time. And there's no question. And it happened at the time that Nisha said it did. It happened at the time Nisha said it did. Really? Let's review. In her police interview, she said it happened, quote, maybe later on, like four or five, end quote. And then at trial, she said it happened, quote, in the evening. So how did a 332 call happen at the time Nisha said it did? The answer is, it didn't. So according to all of Jay's stories, the Nisha call could not have happened at 332. According to Jen's statement, the Nisha call could not have happened at 332. According to Nisha, the Nisha call could not have happened anytime before January 31st. And that's just the beginning. Jay also made no mention of the Nisha call in his first interview. It wasn't until his second interview when everyone agrees and is a matter of the official record that the police had confronted him with the cell records that he finally then mentions Adnan calling a girl and putting him on the phone. But for what it's worth, Brett is right. We do know that the phone did call Nisha that day. So if that wasn't Adnan and Jay together calling her, which it absolutely wasn't and couldn't have been, then why did that call happen? He says to be charitable, this is a stretch. But I say, probably a butt dial. It had to have been. It's not a stretch. If any of you out there owned one of those Nokia phones in 1999, like I did, you know how little of a stretch it is. The way those phones worked, and like I said, I had one in 1999. It's my very first cell phone. Was that you saved your top 10 contacts as speed dial numbers. You programmed those numbers into one of the numeric digits on the phone. It was pretty slick. For me to call my girlfriend in 1999, all I had to do was one long press on the number one, and bingo, it would start ringing. It was very convenient, but the downside was that every time it was in your pocket and you shifted your body just right, it would call one of those speed dial numbers. It happened to me all the time, like literally almost daily. It happened to everyone, and that's where the term butt dial came from. But Brett and Alice act as though it's bananas to think that this is what could have happened here. But this is another case of Occam's razor. If Jay's statement makes this call impossible, and Jen's statement makes this call impossible, and Nisha's statement makes this call impossible, but butt dials were a common occurrence with these phones, guess what? It's probably a butt dial. But how does a butt dial go on for over two minutes, you ask? Well, Brett says in order for that to be true, there would have to be some kind of glitch in the cell phone billing. But based on what we've learned from all the cell experts we've had in the show over the years, it's not a glitch at all. That's just how the billing works. The duration of the call listed on the billing statement includes the ringing time. When you press send and activate the network, you're being charged for that. You're using their network. Now, normally, those unanswered calls only last for around 30 seconds because they go to voicemail after that. But in this case, this was Nisha's private landline in her house, and she had no answering machine or voicemail. So the call would have just rang and rang and rang and rang until whoever had the phone realized it and hung up. So if you were made to feel stupid because you think this could have been a butt dial, 
you shouldn't feel that way. It absolutely could have been a butt dial. And in fact, it's the most likely explanation. But after a quick break, let's move on to the other reasons that we know this was not Adnan and Jay together calling Nisha. Let's talk timing. So based on sheer necessity, the prosecutors have landed on 315 as the come and get me call. 236 doesn't work. It's impossible. And while 345 actually fits Jay's timing of when he and Jen said that they left her house, there's bigger problems with that time. So it's avoided like the plague. We'll get into those later. So all that's left is 315. There's no choice. 236 is impossible. 345 is impossible. The only other call that it could possibly be is 315. So we got to stick with 315. So let's assume for a minute that that's true. At 3.15 p.m., Adnan calls Jay from the Best Buy and says, come get me. Which, not for nothing, and nobody ever talks about this, why the hell would Adnan need Jay to come get him? According to the state and Jay, the only purpose for this call was so that Jay could come look in the trunk and then follow Adnan to a different location to dump Hay's car and then give Adnan a ride back to track practice. Why wouldn't he just say, meet me at the parking ride? Why draw more attention to the situation by having someone else come to the crime scene in a public parking lot, in broad daylight, just to pop the trunk open again and then leave? I've never understood that. And furthermore, if that location is so secluded in the Best Buy parking lot in broad daylight that Adnan could both murder Hay in the car and then pick up her dead body, drag it out of the car, then carry around to the back of the car, open the trunk, dump her into the trunk. If he could do all that without being noticed, why move the car at all? Why wouldn't he just leave it there? It's obviously super duper secluded and private, or he couldn't have done any of that. It's the weirdest thing to me that anyone thinks this whole come and get me call is even a remote possibility at any time. It doesn't make sense like most of Jay's story. But anyway, that's the story, so we're sticking to it. So Adnan calls Jay at 3.15 p.m. and tells him to come to the Best Buy. Now, that's a 10 to 15-minute drive, depending on traffic and how you catch all the lights. So Jay arrives at Best Buy at 3.25, 3.30. And that's if he leaves right away, right when he gets the call. Or say, let's ignore Jay and Jen's stories, except for the fact that this weird call occurred at all. And instead, we'll use the incoming call pings, as unreliable as they are. And we'll say that Jay wasn't at Jen's, but instead, he was already over near the Best Buy. So let's say, to be gracious, that it only takes Jay five minutes to get there and park. So it's 3.20 now. Call it 3.15. Quick five minutes and he's there. 3.20. He waits for Adnan to walk up with his red gloves on that he's oddly still wearing on this warm day after walking and calling from a payphone that may or may not exist. And now furthermore, 3.20 is actually being pretty gracious. Because the phone calls Jen's house at 321, six minutes after the supposed come get me call. And it seems unlikely that this call occurred after Jay got to the car. So being charitable, let's split the difference and say Jay got to the car at 323. Maybe he called Jen on the way, right after leaving her house. 
But if we go with that, the most charitable time we can really come up with, that's eight minutes after he gets the phone call to come to Best Buy. He's there at the Best Buy. According to Jay, at this point, Adnan starts telling him the story about what happened. This is where he says Adnan says he thinks Hay was trying to say something. Jay says he cuts him off because it's getting too disturbing. The trunk is popped. and Jay looks and tells him to close the trunk. Adnan complies and tells Jay that he needs to follow him. Adnan then gets into Hay's car and Jay into Adnan's and Jay follows Adnan out of the parking lot. So let's be extremely gracious and say all of that took a total of only two minutes. So where are we now? He gets there at 323. All of that interaction, the walk up, the gloves, the story, the trunk pop, getting back in the cars, telling him to follow him, all that only took two minutes. So that puts us at 325 p.m. at the earliest. And really, that's pretty ridiculous. It would be much later than that if any of this was true. But we want to be as gracious as possible. So now it's 325. Are you starting to see the problem here yet? So now the two of them drive to the other side of town. Best Buy's on the west side of town. The I-70 parking ride's on the east side of the town with Woodlawn in the middle. So the two of them now drive to the other side of town to the I-70 parking ride in separate vehicles to drop off Hayes' car. Now that drive by itself on a weekday at 3.30 is going to be a minimum 10-minute drive. I've been there. I've done it multiple times. The main road to get there is nothing but stoplights and lots of traffic. So if they leave Best Buy at 325, which is a stretch and assumes it only took Jay eight minutes to get to the Best Buy after answering the phone, giving him time to make that call to Jen on the way, the earliest they could get to the park and ride would be 335, give or take a minute or two. Do you see the problem yet? We're past the Nisha call at this point, and Jay and Adnan haven't been in the same car together yet. Try to explain to me how Jay remembers the two of them sitting at a golf course, he says actually, which fucks this up even more, in the car together talking to Nisha when even under the most charitable circumstances, they have yet to be in the same car. And if you were thinking, maybe you could squeeze out an extra minute or two to try to get closer, you can't. Because according to Jay, once they got to the park and ride, Quote, he got out of the car and proceeded to go through the trunk and the back seat and uh, several items he picked up and moved around and stuff like that. And then he came over to his car, um, told me to pop the trunk. I popped the trunk. He placed a whole bunch of items in the trunk. And then he got into the driver's seat and we switched places and I got in the passenger seat. End quote. So it's not like this was a quick drop the car and let's go. He says they both got out of the cars. And Adnan moved stuff around, had Jay pop the trunk and move stuff from one car to the other, and then they finally got into the same car. So if Jay got to Best Buy super duper fast, they only spent two minutes there for Adnan to tell the story, do the trunk pop, and tell Jay to follow him. Then they made it to the parking ride on the east side of this whole map. Best Buy's on the west side, like I said, but they made that drive in just 10 minutes. That puts them arriving at the car dump location in separate cars at 335, three minutes after. The Nisha call. Do you see now why the state went with 2.36 p.m. at trial? They had no choice. Because this continues to get worse. I'm not done. The Nisha call was an outgoing call. So we can rely on it for location. 
but it doesn't ping the tower covering the park and ride. Nowhere near it. It pings the west sector of the tower that's west of Woodlawn. The sector that covers Best Buy, the mall, which is where I think Jay was, probably shopping for Stephanie, Adnan's house, the mosque, all that stuff on the west side. That's where this call came from. But the park and rides on the other side of town. So let's say Jay was actually across the street when Adnan called and said, come to Best Buy, which is a great happenstance because Jay also said that he didn't know where the pickup location would be before Adnan called. But let's just say he's across the street and he gets there super fast, like two minutes. And the walk up, the red gloves, the story, the trunk pop, closing the trunk, tell him to follow him. All that only takes one minute. So now the call came at 315. And by 3.18, just three minutes later, they are on their way to dump the car. Then they drive to the park and ride. Ten minutes later, they're dropping the car. Now it's 3.28. They still have four minutes. But now they have to drive past the school again, all the way back to the Best Buy area, another ten minutes. Or hell, let's say six minutes. Maybe somehow they caught the sector from behind it for some crazy reason. That's still 3.34. Two minutes too late for the Nisha call. I've said it before, and I'll say it again, this case is not complicated, folks. It only becomes complicated if you try to make Jay's stories and the cell phone records make sense. It is physically impossible for Adnan to have called Jay to come get him at 3.15 and to have been in the car with him calling Nisha 17 minutes later. It cannot be done. And if 345 was the come get me call, it's impossible for Adnan to have been in the car with Jay eight minutes before that call. And we already know it's impossible for 236 to have been the come get me call. So where does that leave us? Simple. It's not complicated. The Nisha call was a butt dial. No question about it. And more importantly, there never was a come get me call. None of this ever happened which I'll continue to prove to you with the actual evidence next week, unfortunately, because I've only made it through the first call in their episode four. And at this rate, I don't have time to do the rest of the timeline justice in this episode. So this is going to be a two-parter. I'll finish the rest of their timeline from their episode four in my next episode. Thank you for listening. And thank you so much for supporting this work with your Patreon subscription. And please take this info out into the world and explain to the people who think the Nisha call is proof of Adnan's guilt, that it is proven that Adnan and Jay were not together making that call. I'll have all the case documents for this episode up on the Truth and Justice website for you to review for yourself. Please do not take my word for it. Look at the documents, read it for yourself. And before I let you go, I just want you to remember what Brett said. This call is a huge problem for Adnan. It puts Adnan and Jay together at exactly when they would need to be together for Adnan to have killed Hay. This call puts Adnan and Jay together, and they would need to be together for Adnan to have killed Hay. And he's right. They would need to be together at this point for Adnan to be guilty. But as it turns out, they definitely were not.
Truth and Justice is an NBI Studios production. All music for the show is created and composed by Shane Yoder at PutThemInASong.com. The font you see on all of our logos and banners were created by Tate Krupa of Red Swan Graphic Design. Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com Design Created manages and maintains our website, Truth and Justice Pod, where you can view all photos and documents discussed in every episode. Thank you to our volunteer transcription team, Pamela Westby, Kathy McElhaney, Courtney Wimberly, Erica Cantor, Melissa Cardenas, Kay Wood-Yomnick, and Danielle Rohr. And as always, thank you to all of you for your engagement and your support. If you like the show and you want to support us, you can do that in a number of ways. The number one way for you to support our work is to become a patron at patreon.com slash truthandjustice. If you join our Patreon, not only will you be financially supporting our work, but you'll also get something for your pledge. For just $5 per month, you'll get all episodes ad-free and also a video version of the Friday follow-ups that include an hour-long pre-show chat exclusive to our patrons. Other levels will get you a Truth and Justice Army t-shirt, Truth and Justice hats, and even the opportunity to co-host a Friday follow-up episode. Just go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice to sign up. You can also help us out by going to iTunes and leaving us a five-star rating and review. It doesn't cost you a penny, and it goes a long way towards making the show more visible. If you have a case that you'd like us to consider covering, you can submit your cases on our website, truthandjusticepod.com. Just click on the case submission button and fill out the form. And the most important thing that you can do is engage in our investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like our Facebook page, follow us on Instagram, or join in on the conversation on the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page. For all of you tweeters out there, you can connect with us on Twitter at truthjusticepod, and I can be found on social media at Truth. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, I'm signing off. I'm Bob Ruff, and this has been Truth and Justice.